death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You may be seated as we pray. Father, uh, even as we read your word, we hear what you've said clearly in this book. Probably many of us are uh, still foggy in our minds. This is a very dense passage. It's complex. So maybe even this morning, more than other mornings, we feel how much we need the help of your Spirit to give light to us, to help us understand, to help us hear. Maybe there are others here, Father, who it's not the complexity of the passage, but the complexity of their lives that right now has them in a position where they feel like it's hard to hear. So for all of us, Lord, we just acknowledge we need your Spirit's help. We want to hear your voice. We're tired of the voices of people all the time. We want to hear your voice. So I pray that my words would be helpful to that end and that your Spirit would be working in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. He's been given the cross of valor. So what? Chirp the smart aleck, know-it-all adolescent from behind his video game console. He was declining his parents' request that he come down and meet the distinguished visitor. To him, the medal was just a fact. He failed to see the significance of that man's heroism. I think too many of us Christians today approach Jesus' humanity with the same casual, disconnected attitude. Sure, we acknowledge the fact of his humanity. Jesus was fully man, fully God, fully man. We acknowledge that. We don't realize the weight and significance of it. So my prayer as I've been preparing is that God would use this passage this morning to open our eyes to all that Jesus has done for us 
by becoming a man. In a certain sense, we could talk about last week's passage as being focused on Jesus as the Son of God. And this week's passage focused on Jesus as the Son of Man. It focuses on the Son being made low. Made low. And it does so following a fairly simple pattern. First, there is a passage from the Old Testament that's given. And then the author teases out some implications of that passage. So in verses 5 to 8, we have an Old Testament passage. And then in the rest of verse 8, all the way through 11, the implications are drawn out. Then in verses 12 to 13, you have an Old Testament passage again. And then in verses 14 through 18, the implications are drawn out. So let's begin by looking at the first Old Testament passage that's quoted, which is Psalm 8. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. If you're using the Bible in the P-Rack, that's on page 450. Psalm 4, 8. I said Psalm 4, 8. I don't know what. Psalm 8. Four, page 450. That's probably where the 4 came from. All right, I'm just going to read Psalm 8. It's, it's a short psalm, so we'll get it into our, uh, into our minds so we can just kind of grapple with it a bit. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of Him, and the Son of Man that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him for a, little, for a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, you can tell how, from how the psalm begins and ends that it's a psalm of praise to God. But also, in the, in the face of the greatness of God, it marvels that God ever entrusted creation to mankind. See, back in Genesis, when God was creating the world, God entrusted all of creation to Adam and Eve. They were told to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to be the guardians of the world. And the psalmist asks, what is man that you would give him such an honor, especially in the face of what a great God we serve? But even as you read this psalm, if you read it closely, there's a tension. It seems a bit idealistic, doesn't it? It says that everything, everything is subjected to us. 
everything? I mean, really? Everything's subject to us? Try telling that to the mother of a teenager. Everything's subject to us? Try telling that to the residents of Fort McMurray. Everything's subjected to us? Try telling that to the peacekeeping forces of the United Nations. I mean, if we're honest, we can't even control our own bodies. We know we shouldn't eat that, but we do. We know we shouldn't repeat that, but we do. We know we shouldn't click on that, but we do. You see, Psalm 8 seems a bit unrealistic. And that's the exact point made by the author of Hebrews. So let's go back to Hebrews now. We've kind of looked at Psalm 8. Now, in Hebrews, it begins in verse 5 by referencing how God entrusted creation to man, even as God was creating the world. But then it quotes Psalm 8. In fact, it quotes the very verses in question that talk about everything in subjection under his feet. But look what he says there in verse 8 after he finishes the quote. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then listen. At present... We do not see everything in subjection to him. I like how my mentor, Kent Hughes, explained this verse. He says, Grand and encouraging as God's original intention was, something has gone wrong. And the writer purposely gives it dramatic expression. There is nothing, he says, in this world that is not under man's dominion. Nothing. Nothing. The author intends us to take exception. He wants us to say, wait a moment, that's not true. And then he verbalizes for us. Verbalizes it for us. Yet at present, we do not see everything subjected to him. You bet your life we don't, he concludes. The sad reality is that when man first sinned, he fell short of God's standard. And all humanity after him has done the same. Instead of subduing the earth and ruling over it as his image bearers, we're actually enslaved. Enslaved to sin. Enslaved to death. And the Bible says, enslaved to the devil. Devil. You can just look at verses 14 and 15 a little further ahead. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong straight slavery. We are slaves to death. We're slaves to the devil. We're slaves to our sinful passions. Do we realize that we're enslaved? 
I mean, we ought to rule over our passions and impulses, but they rule over us, don't they? You might have set out to do things differently than the way your parents had done, but now you find you're repeating the same sins. All things subjected to us? I don't think so. Psalm 8, in the context of the Old Testament, sounds a chord that still needs to be resolved. I mean, it's obviously that those words, it's obvious that those words are about man, but it cannot be about man because of the fall. So how is this tension resolved? Not surprisingly, it's one of those Old Testament mysteries that only makes sense in light of Jesus. We talked about these kind of passages in the Old Testament last week. We went through seven of them. It's an unresolved chord that finds resolution in Jesus. So back in Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels... Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now just remember, if you've been tracking with us in our series in Hebrews, you know that the author's kind of been teasing us, wetting our appetite, kind of inviting us, drawing us in to discover Jesus afresh. And remember that one of the ways he's been doing that is up until this point, he hasn't mentioned Jesus' name. He's just talking about uh, this son, this one who's not an angel, but he hasn't said who it is. Well, it's at this point for the first time that the author sees fit to mention Jesus by name. And look how the structure goes. Back in verse 8, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9, but we see him, skipping ahead, Jesus. We see no man who has fulfilled Psalm 8, but we see Jesus who has fulfilled Psalm 8. Do you see how he talks about what he did? Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. That's exactly the language from Psalm 8, quoted in verse 7. The unresolved chord of Psalm 8 finds its resolution in Jesus. You see, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a time when he took on flesh, when he became a man, born of a virgin. But Jesus is also now crowned with glory and honor because he rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. So he was made low and exalted high. To put it differently, the Son of God from chapter 1 is the Son of Man from chapter 2. So that's Psalm 8. Now, the author of Hebrews takes these truths and pushes them a bit further. He, likes to, he wants us to kind of wrestle with the implications of the fact that Jesus is the one who brings the resolution to Psalm 8. And he doesn't want us, uh, he doesn't just want us to know that Jesus resolved the tension of Psalm 8. He wants us to know that because of what Jesus did, we also can be restored to our original purposes. So, 
He talks about how Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And then look in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to, what does it say? Glory. That's the language of Psalm 8, right? So he's been crowned with glory and honor. But he also, in fulfilling Psalm 8, is able to take us and bring us to glory. In other words, he did something that allows us to fulfill Psalm 8. Psalm 8 can be true of us because it is first true of Jesus. And why that is, is is explained for us in verses 9 and 10. Look at the profound little phrase at the end of verse 9. Taste death. He might taste death for everyone. Now I want to unpack that a little bit. The Bible teaches that you and I are rebels against God. That's strong language, but think about it. God has a perfect world that he created. He has a perfect plan that he's laid out in scripture. Here's how we're to live. And when all lives that when everyone lives that way, it is a perfect and harmonious world. It's a great kingdom. Yet when we sin, we undercut God's good order for the world. We commit high treason against God's good kingdom. And the Bible says because of this, because we are committing treason against His kingdom, because we're rebels against His good rule, we are all deserving of death. That's clear in Genesis. It's clear in the book of Romans. But then here in Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus experienced the death we deserve. What it's telling us is that He took the penalty for us. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. Have you ever wondered why Jesus needed to come to this earth? I have a lot of questions about Jesus. The Bible says Jesus didn't come to this earth just to give us an example to follow. Jesus came to deal with the core issue behind all the brokenness in this world. And that is to deal with sin. He came to take our penalty upon Himself. See, according to the Bible, all of us, including you, will one day face God. And you will have to answer for why you continually, over and over in your life, even though you lived a good life, you continually rejected His good ways in different ways. You'll have to answer for every crooked path you've chosen. Unless, unless, 
unless you embrace Jesus. Then God allows the penalty, the penalty He took, the death He tasted for us, He allows that penalty He took to count for us. He becomes the substitute. He tasted death for everyone. Now verse 10 draws out the irony of this, doesn't it? It talks about how God, the Father, is the author of life. He for whom and by whom all things exist. This author of life, God the Father is the author of life. In God the Son was willing to come and experience death. The author of life experiences death so that those who deserve death can experience life. Now, I know we've been kind of plowing through a lot here so far. I told you it's a complex passage, but let me just try and summarize it with, with a, a picture. Imagine a, a magical fantasy world with a, a slew of people on a quest. They're moving toward an important destination. Can you tell I've been reading The Hobbit with my kids? Suddenly, they're cut off from their destination by a thick mess of tightly entwined thorns and thistles. It becomes this dark and impassable hedge. They can't go where they're intended to go because of the hedge. And then one man steps forward, uniquely qualified from this slew of humanity trying to press through. One man steps forward and goes in to the hedge. He disappears for a time. But meanwhile, while he's disappeared in the hedge, he's slicing and making a way through the hedge, and he arrives at the destination. He arrives on the other side, victorious over the hedge. No other man could have done it, but somehow this man was uniquely able to do so. And not only was he the first to arrive at the destination, but he'd made a way through the hedge for anyone who would follow him. That's what Jesus has done for us. Our destination, according to Psalm 8, is this. All things subjected to us. The thorny hedge is our rebellion against God that cuts us off from being able to do that. But Jesus tastes death on our behalf. He goes into the hedge. And he emerges victorious on the other side. As a result, we don't have to suffer in the hedge. We can follow the path he carved for us. So if we're thinking about Jesus as made low, he's made low to gain the crown and restore us to our right place with God. And just to, to push that a little bit, he was made low to die so that he could gain the crown and restore us to our right place before God. I hope you can see that from our passage. But the author isn't yet done drawing out the implications of Psalm 8. The passage is still focused on how Jesus was made low. It's still focused on how Jesus became a son of man, to use the words of Psalm 8. Look at the end of verse 10. 
It says, He made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So why was Jesus made low? Why did He become a Son of Man that is fully human? Listen, because without actually experiencing humanity's suffering, He would be a less than perfect Savior. You see, it was man who was intended to reflect God's perfect rule over the earth, according to Genesis 1.28. It was mankind who had repelled against God and lost that glory, according to Genesis 2.7 and 10. So it must be a man one who likewise came from Adam and can call us brothers who must redeem us. So Jesus, as our Savior, had to be made perfect by suffering like us. Now, it's not talking about moral perfection. There wasn't anything morally imperfect about Jesus prior to His suffering. As God, He was perfectly without sin eternally. But unless He became a man like us, He could not save us. A man was needed to redeem mankind because it was man who had brought us into this mess. And that's what verse 11 is saying. If the ones who descend from Adam need a Savior the only one who descended from Adam, then, then only one who descended from Adam can save them. For he who sanctifies, that is, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, the rest of humanity, all have one source, that is, Adam. Since Jesus was born of a man, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the same source. And so Jesus by joining Adam's race and dying, became our perfect Savior. Those are then the implications that the author has drawn out for us from Psalm 8. I know it's a lot there, but let's just think. Jesus was made low. He was made low to gain the crown and restore us to our right place before God. Or to add the phrase to die. He was made low to die so that he could gain the crown and restore us to the right place before God. Made how low? As low as a son of man. So he could suffer like a man. That's the first section of our passage today. Then, the author turns to two more Old Testament quotations. This time to emphasize Jesus' solidarity with humankind. The first one he quotes there in verse 12 is Psalm 22. This is another one of those psalms that raises questions to which Jesus is the only answer. So I want us to turn there. Turn to Psalm 22. It's on page 457, Psalm 22, page 457. I'm not going to read this whole psalm. 
It's another psalm of David. And at face value, it's a psalm that gives account of David's suffering, which leads him to cry out to God for deliverance. But again, there's some things in here that don't really add up to David's experience of suffering. So look at verse 15, how he describes the suffering. He says, My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Or look at verse 16. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. In part because they're so sore, in part because they're not broken. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Such specificity, such detail, and yet things that go far beyond any situation King David ever faced. But you know what's interesting? It was this psalm that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. Look at verse 1 of our psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've been around the church at Easter time, or have thought about the death of Christ. You've heard that phrase. It comes from this psalm. Jesus was quoting it. He was saying that He was the one who made sense of the psalm. And then when you go back and read, about, read through the psalm, you can see, oh, this is describing the suffering Jesus would endure. But none of the verses that I just pointed you to are the ones that the author of Hebrews quotes. The author of Hebrews thinks it's obvious to everyone that this psalm pointed forward to Jesus. So he takes us to a verse a little later in the psalm. Verse 22. When the suffering kings calls the congregation my brothers. Turn back to Hebrews then. Here's the point of the Hebrews quotation. This suffering king who is ultimately vindicated by God calls all of us his brothers. The author of Hebrews is showing us that Psalm 22 not only demands that the Savior be brothers with those he saves, it even shows his solidarity with us. Because in the intensity of Jesus' suffering for us, which Psalm 22 highlights, which Jesus quoted on the cross, in that intense suffering, Jesus is showing solidarity with us who suffer in this world. So that was the first passage quoted in, our, in the second section of our passage. But there's two more in verse 13, two more quotations And they both come from Isaiah 8. And they also emphasize Jesus' solidarity with us as people. Now to understand how these quotes work, we need to understand a bit about the life of the prophet Isaiah. You see, Isaiah was one of the few people who was faithful to God in a generation where many weren't. And he'd called his people to be righteous 
And he'd called his people to pursue justice. He had modeled godly living. But he'd continually been rejected and persecuted. So in Isaiah 8, Isaiah does two things. He entrusts himself to God, which is quoted in the first part of verse 13. And he prays for the children with whom God has given him or whom God has given him in the second half of verse 13. Now, stop and think about Jesus in comparison to Isaiah. He too was faithful to God. He too called the people to righteousness and justice. He too lived a godly life. And he too was rejected and persecuted. And in the midst of that intense rejection and persecution at the Garden of Gethsemane, how does he pray? He prays, not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, he prays, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. So 1 Peter 2 says that he entrusted himself to God the Father. Do you see the connection? He had to trust in God the Father just like Isaiah did. Solidarity. And then you read Jesus' prayer just before the cross in John 17 where He prays for the children that God has given Him that they would be able to remain unstained from the world, that they would be able to not be caught up by all that the world will throw at them. He's praying for them, the children whom God has entrusted to Him. And do you see the connection? Jesus prayed for those whom God had entrusted to Him just like Isaiah prayed for His children that God had entrusted to him. Solidarity. The author of Hebrews, by quoting these verses that would have been so easily linked to what Jesus did, and yet they were the words of Isaiah, shows that Jesus identified with Isaiah's faith. Suffering Isaiah was not alone. And nor are we in our suffering. I know some in this room are bearing great weights. Some that you can, that you vocalized or told me about. Some in this room that I don't know about. But Jesus suffers with us. He entrusted himself to God in the same viscerally human ways that Isaiah did. It's Jesus tattered, weary, faith-filled, beaten, scorned Jesus. This Jesus brought us to glory through His humanity. He truly is the perfect Savior. Made low to suffer like you and me. The quotations from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 emphasize Jesus' solidarity with us. He calls us His brothers. He calls us His children. Now, that's just the quotations. Then there's the explanation given in verses 14 through 18. The Scriptures draw out these implications of His solidarity with us. So look at verse 14. If He is going to redeem those who are flesh and blood, he had to take on 
flesh and blood. But then look what he does for us in verses 14 and 15. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What that's saying is that Jesus died in a particular way. You, all of us are going to die. Jesus experienced that same suffering that we're going to experience. All of us are going to die. Jesus died. But he died in a particular way, in such a way that the devil himself was defeated, and in so doing, by defeating the devil, he broke the power of death. Now again, to really get our handle on what's being said here, I need to fill in a little bit of the Bible's view of the world. The Bible teaches that God made a world without death, without tears, without suffering. It says the world is the way it is with death and tears and suffering because man rebelled against God. And by doing so, unleashed the dark power of sin into the world. And sin spread like a black plague across of humanity. All of humanity was affected. And the byproduct of that plague, as a byproduct of that plague, death spread, disease spread, suffering spread. All that's broken in this world is a byproduct of that. And the Bible teaches that we are under that power. Think about it. Try and stop your body from aging and breaking down and eventually dying. The richest people in the world spend tons of money trying to keep their bodies young and they can't do it. The smartest doctors try and help them. They can't do it. We are under slavery to death. Or how about trying to keep yourself from sinning? Maybe you don't even agree with the Christian, the biblical standards that God has laid out. Make your own list of what you think you should live, how you want to be living, and just try and live that out. You can't do it. We can't, we can no longer, we can just as soon escape sinning as we could escape aging and death because we are enslaved to both. And ultimately, the Bible says the ultimately, the fact that we're enslaved to aging and death. The fact that we're enslaved to our own sinful passions proves that that our slave master is the devil. So, in order to overcome that, that black plague, Jesus had to deal with the core problem behind it all, which is our sin. Our sin had to be atoned for. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. How was his death different? Because, look at the end of verse 17. Because he made propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a long sermon already, complex passage, and now you're using the word propitiation? I don't even know how to pronounce that word. I mean, why why do the English translators of the Bible choose such a cumbersome word? Nobody knows what that means. Well, they do because there isn't another word in English that encompasses all that this word means. To propitiate, 
Get this. This is an important word to understand. You don't have to be able to pronounce it, but you've got to understand it. To propitiate is to do something, which was usually a sacrifice, that had two effects. So this propitiation has two effects. First, it satisfies the wrath of a God who has been wronged. So the first effect is on God whose wrath, his just wrath, has been appeased or satisfied. Second, it makes pure the one who's wronged the God. So it has an effect on God and it has an effect on the one who's done wrong. To propitiate is to satisfy the wrath of that God and to make pure the one who'd wronged that God. And so, and if you find a word that does that, tell me and I'll switch it. I'll go in all the Bibles and I'll cross out propitiation and put that word in there. So Jesus makes propitiation for us. It means he was dealing with our sin in two ways. He was absorbing the full and just wrath of God against sin. And by that act, he was enabling us to be counted righteous even though we've sinned. So Jesus dealt with the plague of death and sin head on. Now, we know that if he actually did make propitiation, if the power of sin was actually broken, death wouldn't be able to hold Jesus. Because if he breaks the power of sin, he breaks the power of death. And so, Jesus did, in fact, rise from the grave. He conquered death, which proves he conquered sin. And when he returns, all who are in Christ, all who are in Christ will be raised, just like he was. Our bodies will overcome death. And Jesus will usher in a new kingdom free of any disease or suffering or tears. Put simply then, Jesus conquered the devil on the cross. He freed us from that slavery. But he had to conquer the devil as a man. And the way to conquer the devil was to undo the power of sin. Because he was dealing with sin, he also undoes the power of death. He defeats the devil, he defeats sin, he defeats death. So that's what verse 14 is saying when it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The very things that hold us, the very things that enslave us, Jesus defeated. He was made low to redeem the enslaved. Verse 16 points out just how low he was made. He wasn't just made as low as an angel. Jesus was made even lower than that. He was made as low as a son of Adam, as an offspring of Abraham. That's how low he was made. But he was made that low for a reason. To redeem the enslaved. Remember Psalm 22, Isaiah 8, solidarity with us? He was made low to redeem the enslaved. And some of you who are here this morning feel your enslavement. You feel 
very keenly that everything is not subjected to you. To go back to Psalm 8 from the beginning. You feel low. So listen to God's message to you this morning. Jesus was made as low as you. In your suffering, Jesus was made low like you. He felt the pangs of temptation just like you. He felt betrayal. He tasted death. And He even felt the wrath of God the Father against sin because He took our sins upon His shoulders. He was made low. And because He was made low, We can experience His victory. We can experience His glory. He's cut away through the thorny hedge for us so we can follow in His train. And not only that, but verse 17 says, He became a merciful and faithful high priest who is able, according to 18, to help those who are being tempted. So this is Jesus this morning held out for you. The Son of Man. This is Jesus, fully man, one of us, made low. He is near to us, we who are low. He is near to us, we who are enslaved. He is near to us, we sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And He has saved us. Saved us by His death. A death which we get to remember now as we participate in communion. So let me pray.